Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic, sitting here with Aaron Cameron. Happy to report we are doing podcasts back live in person. So I hope you appreciate the improved audio quality. I know I'm loving seeing these faces. And the face that we're looking at today, it's a, a repeat guest, Mark Rothschild. He was very popular last time he came on. So of course, we had to invite him back. He is Managing Director, Real Estate Analyst at Canaccord Genuity. Welcome back, Mark. Thank you. Great to be back. So we're going to timestamp this because we are in a bit of a hectic market environment. April 18th, bond yields are up about 100 beeps in the last, or 80 beeps in the last month or so. And that is relevant to our conversation today. I want to do a little bit on your background just to set the stage, but we'll do an abridged version. I want to punish the people that didn't listen to your first version and reward those that did. But let's set the stage on what you do and what you track. Sure, thanks. I've been covering the Canadian REITs for pretty much about 20 years now. And I think this week's my anniversary since I joined Genuity about 17 years ago. So while I have some experience in the U.S. prior working in the U.S. REIT market, I've been covering Canadian REITs a long time. And it's definitely an interesting period, something new. And and exciting to see, not necessarily in a positive way, but the impact of higher interest rates on the REITs and how they trade. So there's definitely a lot to discuss there. Well, and that's a good point. Adam and I released an episode that we recorded about 10 minutes ago, but released last week or the previous week. Maybe we'll release it a couple of days back and forth. But those of you that listen regularly, you would have just heard an episode about Adam and I talking about the impact of interest rates and what's actually transpired. So I would actually suggest if you're listening to this one, but you haven't listened to the most recent previous episode, go back and listen to that. Hear what Adam and I have to say about interest rates today on April 18th. And that'll make the conversation we're about to have with Mark probably a little bit more meaningful so you understand the context. And Mark will be a more elevated version of uh, the 101. <laughs> well, we did uh, tease it. We <laughs> teased it too in that previous episode. Where we said, listen, we're not going to get into this whole cap rate valuation liquidity discussion because I think it's much more interesting to hear it from you than just from Adam. So let's just talk a little bit what you look into first, Mark, just to set the contact for those that haven't listened to the previous episode. You are obviously a REIT analyst. What does that mean? Sure. So what that means is we follow and research the Canadian REIT market, cover most of the large REITs and many of the smaller ones as well. We publish reports regularly on updates on how they're performing, analyzing their financials each quarter and then provide outlook reports with our valuation work on the REITs and our expectations for them. Some of the reports are more macro focused. Some are more focused specifically on each REIT. But we try to help investors figure out where they will likely make the most money in the short and long term, which REIT sectors are most attractively valued, where are the risks and which ones we like the most based on different valuation metrics. So that's pretty much what we're doing. Just while we're doing it, so I don't forget, where can people go to look for your information? So for the most part, research is available to our clients of Canaccord. So if you're an institutional investor, you would open up an account with our institutional team. If you're a retail investor, you can have an account with our wealth management, with our retail advisors, stockbrokers. And there's always a Canaccord advisor who's willing to work with you and you can get our research that way. Great. Okay, great. Do you want to jump right into the, the, uh, yeah, the, the just, headlining I'm, I'm item? I'm very excited for this conversation. Valuations yeah, so and cap rates. I mean, as we talked about just in the previous episode, the interplay between, I guess, bond yields as the kind of the base for it and cap rates. People borrow money for positive leverage, or at least that's been the case for the last 20 years or so. And we're probably at a point now where cap rates should be lower than what people are borrowing for. So where's well, that lead the reach? Yeah, and like, can I set it up a little bit more than that? So not to jump on your toes there, Adam, but... I don't know the answer to this question. I'm hoping you do, Mark. What percentage of 
sort of institutional real estate is owned by REITs other than private or land or other? It's still pretty small compared to pension funds and institutional investors around the world. The REITs are not the big players. There are certain asset classes, such as perhaps regional malls in the U.S. that REITs, although I put Brookfield in that category, would own a bigger concentration. But the REITs are not big players in a global scale in the REIT market in general. What about in Canada? I mean, it seems to me, I just looking at our client list, and obviously I can list off CapReit and Boardwalk and RioCan. There's a whole bunch of some of our larger clients that are REITs. But I guess if I think about it, there's also a whole bunch of clients that are not not REITs. And but, you think about all the individuals that own real estate. Yeah, that's fair pension too. Pension funds. Uh, the REITs are not controlling the market by any chance. And they are big players, obviously, but it's not like uh, they have a control over the market. Okay, well, that's fair. I still think it's material in the sense that, one, it's public, so it's you have much more perspective over what's going on within those ownership of real estate. And presumably, whether it's REIT and public or private or institutional or what have you, there's a lot of similarities in the way that they operate and, and the impacts that what's happening with the interest rate environment will have on all owners. I think the REIT side is interesting because we get to view into their operations. Second, as I set this conversation up about interest rates and valuations, let's just talk about, is it the AFFO, the FFO, and then NOI? That's ultimately what we're talking about here. And maybe just let's just do a really quick conversation. We'll get back to it maybe later if we have time and a more in-depth about how these numbers are formulated. But ultimately, what we're looking at is the NOI of the REIT and then applying the cap rate to get to the valuation. Is it as simple as that for you and your business? For the most part, yes. If you're doing a net asset value to figure out the value of the real estate right now, you would take the NOI and put a cap rate on it. And what's beautiful and easy about the real estate sector compared to many other asset classes is we have a liquid market every day in the private market. You're asking what percent of the market the REITs have. In some other businesses, you might have the public markets, a much larger percentage of the public market. There's real estate that trades every day almost in the private market. So we have cap rates, which are our way to cheat and just get an easy value for the real estate. And we just put a cap rate on that. If you want to compare real estate to other asset classes or you utilize a different metric, then yes, putting a multiple on FFO or AFFO is another way to go about valuing the real estate. That's funds from operation or adjusted funds from operation. Correct. For those of you that are going, scratching your head on that. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> Mark just released a report that Aaron and I got to helpfully read beforehand. And it did address the idea of valuations and the impact that increasing bond yields and therefore interest rates can have on that. So I want to jump right into, at least what was the top of my mind when I read that report is valuation. So what's your take on valuations as having been impacted by interest rates so far? Yeah, so it's definitely the topic that investors are very focused on now as far as what would the impact be on cap rates and values as interest rates have risen. And over the past 10, 15 years, we've seen short blips, but we haven't really gone through a period, an extended period of rising interest rates. So what we looked at in our report is, and what we follow in general is, what would the spread be between whether it's cap rates and bond yields or cap rates and maybe triple Bs, which will account for credit spreads as well. Because when you buy a property, you're not just financing against a risk-free rate. There is a credit spread that's included. And to ignore that is very misleading. What we see now is the spreads have really compressed quite a bit. I think you mentioned the numbers, maybe 80 basis points of the move in interest rates and the long end of the curve. But if you consider credit spreads, which have widened somewhat also, it might be more than 100 basis points that spread is compressed. So unless cash growth in operating income because of strong inflation and good fundamentals is going to offset all of that, it's reasonable to assume that there'd be some negative impact on cap rates and that cap rates would move higher. And when we look at what's going on in the world today, 
you have a lot of money that's out there looking to buy real estate. And not just from the REITs, you have private money. People have a lot of money looking for real estate and that's supporting values and in some cases driving values higher. As well, you have very strong fundamentals in certain asset classes. Obviously, industrial has been an exceptionally hot area the past few years. Rental apartment properties also very good fundamentals. You know, you think about grocery anchor shopping, later we'll get into more of the asset classes, but it's been pretty defensive. And some areas have been weaker, such as office and seniors housing, but you need that cash flow growth to offset the rise in interest costs to keep the value the same. And while we're seeing to some degree, it's not like industrial or rental apartment fundamentals have changed dramatically in the past three months when interest rates have risen. So we think that there's a reasonable case to be made that cap rates should move higher. What we simply said in our research is that there's no evidence yet of cap rates moving higher, and it may not happen too fast, but you probably shouldn't pay the same premium to NAV that you would for a REIT today as you would have maybe two, three months ago. So we took a little bit of a more cautious view and reduced our target prices for a number of REITs and changed our ratings from a buy to a hold for a bunch of them. And to the extent interest rates continue to rise at the long end I'm talking about, you definitely can make the case that we were too conservative and cautious and time will tell, but that's why we continue to follow them and we'll look at this in different ways going forward. Long end being sort of five years and up? Five years, 10 years, yes, exactly. So then we talk about switching from a, a buy to a hold. Is that reflective of where you think valuations will be six months from now or, or whenever the market starts adjusting to the, this new reality? So it's a combination of where the value is now and where we think it's going to go. I and mean, there definitely have been periods where I would have set a target price based on where I think the net asset value is going to be. And even now, we definitely look out a year in our net asset value because you're not buying a stock based on today's value. You're buying it where you think it's going to be. So you have to consider that. But also, where the cap rates are now, where are they going to be in a year? I don't have a strong enough basis now to say that cap rates are going to go higher. But I think there definitely is an argument to be made that there will be upward pressure. And some of the real estate CEOs are definitely saying that they believe cap rates will rise. And some are very firm in saying that they think they'll hold steady. But that's definitely a debate that's out there that we don't have good evidence yet. But interest rates can't go up 200 basis points without any move in cap rates. That's just not very realistic. So I asked Aaron on the previous episode, I don't know we got a consensus amongst us what the answer is, but the idea that rents capture some of the effects of inflation as an offset against the higher interest cost do you think that that's enough of a reality or enough of a movement to mitigate some of that damage? Absolutely. A hundred percent. I can remember a period, this is before the credit crisis, when you had office buildings in New York City that were trading for a negative going in yields, negative returns, meaning the cost of debt was higher than the cap rate because the rent growth was expected to be so strong. And that didn't work out and some people lost their buildings. But when you think now about the strength in industrial property fundamentals and what's going on in the rental apartment market with all this immigration coming in. There should be positive growth for many years in rental rates that definitely should offset some of the impact of interest rates. And then the question is, if you can get the same IRR for buying a property, even if you're going in return is lower, then for many investors, that's fine because they don't need the entire IRR in the first two years. They can get it over five or 10 years. So definitely some of that can offset the question is how much and is it enough? Can REITs take that liberty, luxury? Because I mean, we, we talk about it all the time. We have clients that are buy and hold, often private families, multi-generational. So they're kind of looking at it on a 30-year horizon anyway. I mean, I don't know if they're doing a 30-year IRR or ROI formula, but they kind of go, 
cap rates are irrelevant to me. It doesn't matter. It's good value. It's good brick, good martyr. It's going to last. So I don't care what the price is today. But REITs don't really have that ability, right? They, don't they have to be so focused on what that cash flow looks like today, what their value versus NAV is, a kind of a fiduciary duty? Distributions, everybody loves. Yeah. So I'd say the fiduciary duty is to make money for their shareholders over time. So I don't think that is the problem. The question is, what's the pressure from shareholders? And what do shareholders want from them and unit holders? If you go back 15 years ago, the focus for Canadian REITs was on paying out all of your income, having the highest distribution yield possible. It didn't matter if you pushed leverage slightly. And it didn't matter if you were focused on upgrading or high grading your portfolio. Today, we're far more mature. Part of it is following the U.S. sector, wheat sector maturing. Part of it is general investors becoming more sophisticated, where payout ratios are much lower, and REITs will be rewarded for having a lower payout ratio. Leverage has declined considerably in the REITs. You know, when I first started covering the REITs, 60% on a book value basis was not abnormal and was not necessarily negative. Now you have REITs at 30%, and you speak to a private investor, they would say that's ridiculous. But REITs can get away, not only get away with that, they can thrive with that because investors are rewarding them. So you do have some cases where REITs will say, we'll take a longer term view and they're doing more development now. And as you know, development, the returns don't come in day one. In some cases, it could take several years. You know, not far from here is the well, which Rio Ken and Allied have been working on for several years. And his 15 years ago, that never would have happened in the REIT market where you spend so much time working on a development of a high quality property that ultimately should create value. So the market has changed. The REITs are allowed to think longer term and what will create more value. But absolutely, you're right. It's not the same as a private investor that will maybe go interest only for five years on a property because they just want to get the cash flow and juice up the IRR the first few years. We're going to get back to cap rates because I still want to talk about the implications of liquidity, but we're here. So I'm going to go on the tangent. And then we talked about this at length the last time we talked to Mark. So I would encourage you again to go back to, to find that episode. But let's just do it really quickly. You mentioned the well, which is the largest development in Canadian history, just a couple blocks from here. It's Rio Cannon Allied. And we were baffled, Adam and I, when we talked to you last time about how that's not priced into the REIT valuation, right? Like it's basically almost ignored. And then all of a sudden, one day, there's going to be this spike in, in AFFO or NOI, and that's going to just drastically change their NAV. So I, I wouldn't say that's completely ignored. What I would say is, though, that it's very difficult for many investors to give the REIT the value in the unit price of the value creation that's coming from the development. It's hard to quantify. It's a future value. Right. And you don't necessarily see it. What we've seen, though, over the past number of years is some REITs take fair value gains on development. And that shows investors. We've seen with Crombie. We actually saw First Capital with a property just this past year where they had a partner. I think it might have been CPP in a development project. And then they were able to buy them out and bring in another partner. And the new partner bought in at a huge premium to what CPP had bought in to the development originally. It was a few years time difference. And there was a big markup in value that investors were able to see. Now, management would argue that their unit price didn't get enough of a bump based on the value that they just proved that they created. So that's to your point that the public market has a hard time with valuing development. But there is definitely acknowledgement from many investors that development does create value. And it's something that investors, many investors do like. But it's absolutely, to your point, hard to value, something that CEOs recognize they don't get a ton of value for initially. I mean, you could talk to Mitch Goldhar from Smart Read, and they have more development than almost anyone. 
And he would argue that there's zero value being given in the unit price. Yeah, well, we've and, talked to Crombie and Rio Can. I mean, all of those, the CEOs, they have the exact same opinion, but that's their job too, I guess, right? <laughs> it is their job. But you could acknowledge why it's hard to value for many investors because it's hard to quantify exactly how much value has been created when you receive zoning for a site. Now, we all know that the value went up when you receive zoning. We all know that the value went up when you secure a tenant for do some pre-leasing. But it's often hard to quantify exactly how much that is and to get investors to say, well, we are going to give credit for that. I mean, one company that we follow at Canaccord, Dream Unlimited, they have a large land bank in Western Canada, Saskatchewan and Alberta. And sometimes we'll find out that they receive zoning for some land that they can build hundreds, if not thousands of homes on, yet it might not even be press released. And you just find out from watching some municipal city zoning meeting in Regina. But we all know that when that land has zoning to build the homes, there's a lot of value that's been created there. But it's not realized until it's either sold or built and distributed. So yes, that's the hardest part. Correct. Correct. So this is why we have Mark on, because I'm not sitting around watching zoning meetings from a Regina right. on a regular basis, but he's looking at every, shining a light into every corner, we'll say. It's, right. It's his uh, job. It's got to do it, right? So before we jump Somebody's off from, do uh, it. valuations, I got one more related question. So interest rates are up north of 100 beeps. You've changed the ratings on a number of REITs from buy to hold. Have you done any threshold testing on how much more need to see interest rates move before you started putting out sell recommendations? So we have no problem putting out sell recommendation, even with interest rates where they are. But when a REIT pays out a generous distribution yield, especially compared to other income-oriented vehicles, and these pay ratios are lower and lower, they've really compressed, declined over time, and the REITs are positioned in many cases to grow the distributions, it's hard to say that you're going to make money selling and being short a REIT. So Canaccord doesn't have an underweight rating, which would allow for more of a sell-type commentary. But to get to your question as far as how we look at interest rates rising, it's not as simple as, well, interest rates go up 50 basis points. And this comes back to the question, I think, that Adam, you were asking earlier, which is, what about rent growth that offsets? So if you have inflation picking up, but interest rates rising at the same time, well, that can offset perhaps all of the move in interest rates. So there's really many different variables that impact that at the same time. And one of the asset classes that we're bullish on that's performed very poorly early this year has been rental apartment REITs and Eastern Canadian apartment REITs, whether it's Capri or Minto or Interrent or Killam, the unit prices are down on 10% in some cases. And you look at rental apartment market, the fundamentals look pretty good, but there's concerns about the government. There was concern that in the budget, the federal government would do something to hurt them. There's concerns that the provincial government before there's an election might do something to make rent control stricter. And these risks are weighing in. If that risk would be removed and they can continue raising rents, even though there is going to be some rent control. So on, if there's no turnover and the rent tenant stays, that you're limited. But if on turnover, they can continue to do what they need to do and they can raise rents on lease renewals by 2 3% a year, especially when inflation is a little stronger. These REITs will do very, very well. So there's a number of variables that go into it, which is part of the, I'm not going to say the secret sauce into how they're valued, but it's all mixed together and there's not just one variable. Yeah, let's not mention the dirty words of vacancy control, which I think is, (laughs) you hear about it still whispers in all sorts of corners of Western uh, Canada. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah, and and unfortunately, sometimes in Ontario. The one variable I think that I'm not sure we totally flushed out, in my mind anyway, that I think is interesting is just the amount of capital out there in the commercial real estate world in the first place. And I'm sure it's true for your section in the REIT market also. And I just, you had a recent report that came out like you've got right here, real estate investment trusts, what is it called? Risk of rising interest rates, I think in general. I don't know if you want to promote that or not, but 
in there, you talk about historic trends of cap rates over triple B bonds, right? As sort of a proxy mm-hmm. and how that historic spread, and I forget what the historic spread is, but it's compressed by a hundred basis points. So again, I mean, you were dead on. Who knows what's going to happen? Like nobody knows if cap rates will follow exactly step and toe with the rise in interest rates. And I would argue almost, even though that it would be apparent, or at least you could argue that they're 100 basis points off of historic trends. And so therefore, they probably do have to rise 100 basis points to get back to historic. Like The variable that I think is ignored or really hard to quantify is that because there's so much capital, interest rates have been pushing cap rates down for the last 20 years. But liquidity in the marketplace has also been pushing cap rates down. That liquidity pressure downwards hasn't changed. Yeah, interest rates are now pushing cap rates up. But where is that balance? Like I just don't think... You just can't argue it rises step and toe. It just can't, right? One asset class that clearly has a lot of questions about the fundamentals is office. And yet we're seeing office properties trade at values that are at the same or higher than pre-COVID. If you think about downtown Toronto, and not that there's a lot of stuff that trades in downtown Toronto, but when we see properties trade, whether it's smaller properties or larger ones, the values are still very high. And that's evident to your point that there's a ton of capital out there looking to buy real estate. And therefore, even if interest rates rise another 50 basis points, if that capital is out there, Cap rates will probably rise at some point, but they could be sticky for a while and it, it definitely can lag. And that's the fun part of this question is how long does it take? Because I mean, that historical trend is set over whatever it is, 15, 20, 25 years. So it is likely that that trend returns at some point in the future. You know, and you play the hypothetical, let's say interest rates stay exactly where they are for the next 10 years. How long does it take cap rates to get back to the historical trend? Is it 10 years, right? Because of there's so much liquidity out there just chasing opportunity it's really interesting just to think about how long, if ever, cap rates get back to that historic trend. And this gets to the difference between what you guys do and what I do, because you're dealing with properties that are trading today, and I'm looking at stocks, which are going to price in what's going to happen over the next six months to 18 months. So if the expectation is that cap rates will move, investors will value the REITs based off of that, even if they haven't. Yeah. So that's tough. That's the, is there an actuary in your team that's running all of these models? Probably. <laughs> It's where the questions come up. And that's why we're not always right. And we're often wrong. And we go off you know, what we see and what we hear. But yeah, there's a, definitely a lot of uncertainty. And you know, reasonable people will come to different conclusions. Well, on that note of being on right and wrong, how difficult is it to prognosticate right now, given that we're seeing you know, like interest rate increases we haven't seen in 20, 30 years, and a lot of variables in play that are tough to model from a historical context? How much tougher is your job right now trying to look in the crystal ball? I don't think that it's tougher because in some ways, it's always the same. Because most years for the past 10 years, we went into the year with economists and strategists predicting that long-term interest rates would go up modestly. That's happened almost every year the past 10 years. Now, it's obviously not been right most years. But if you just build that in, generally do because I'm not an economist to predict interest rates, then I'm going to say, well, is there enough going for the real estate sector that cap rates don't have to move higher? Usually in the past 10 years, most years there has been because the economy has been decent. There's been fund flows into the real estate. We've spoken about capital, as you just mentioned, capital pushing cap rates down. Right now, the move in rates has been high enough. There's definitely a lot of uncertainty in the world, that's for sure. So it seems to us that there's enough to justify that cap rates aren't going lower and that there could be upward pressure. And if rates continue to move higher, there should be upward pressure on cap rates. That's what we say. But Every year you go through that same thing. And there have been many times where you go through a short period of time where rates move 30, 40, 50 basis points. And it's not clear, is that going to hold? Is it going to continue? 
that happens every few months that there's uncertainty. Now, it doesn't happen every few months that they jump 40, 50 basis points. And it doesn't happen very often at all that they jump 100 basis points. But even so now, there probably are people predicting that they come back down. I hope they're right. That would be uh, great for our purposes. <laughs> I hope they're right also. Yeah. It would be great for all of us. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the performance then. Uh, one interesting part of the report, it highlighted last year's return. I think it was all REITs, or at least the REITs you cover, was all in return north of 20%. And Q1 2022, which is the focus of this report, coming in at, uh, I think, 0.9%. Is there factors other than just the March bond rise at play? Because that's a, obviously a, a dramatic difference. Yeah, so actually 2021 was north of 30%. So it was actually okay. very strong returns and investors did very, very well. As far as early this year, there's a number of factors. But in our view, the most important factor was interest rates rising. But you know, following a very strong year, it's reasonable to have some profit-taking people to say, well, I'm not going to put the same money into the sector as I did the previous year. But if you look at the sectors that did well in Q1, industrial and apartments, which were stronger previously, did poorly. In the apartment sector, we think some of that was concern about government intervention and the government putting stricter rules on their ability to raise rents or tax, perhaps tax the apartment REITs. Trudeau has been putting out comments like that. And there was definitely was concern in the budget that something would happen. And the asset classes that were underperformers of late that had questions during COVID, such as retail and office, picked up and did better. But part of it was also rotation. Other sectors, such as energy and materials, did better in Q1. And that probably pulled some money out of the REIT sector. But in our view, the largest factor is probably the rise in interest rates and the expectation that there could be upward pressure on cap rates. Okay, interesting then, because... I would say that a lot of times people pay attention to interest rates, but movements of kind of 20, 30 basis points that you're talking about don't really get factored into return. But this is a once in a 20 year kind of event. And those kinds of differences in return are stratospheric. But one, let me just interrupt you on that, because when you think about a 25 basis point move in the cap rate, that could be a 7, 8% move in value. Now, it depends on leverage and how low or how high the cap rate is. But you're right. The cap rates don't move generally so often with a small move in interest rates. But if you think cap rates are going up 25 basis points, right there, you could justify an 8% drop in a REITs unit price in the NAV. Which is, and then from an equity position, that could be even larger. That's huge. This is a technical question, but my understanding is that all REITs have to get like professional appraisals done on a quarterly basis. And that's really where that drives a lot of their reporting. Is that true? So some of that's done internally. Okay. But I would say we tend not to focus on that too much because... We have seen some REITs that are in the same market as others take marks more than others, which means take marks that, meaning increasing or decreasing the moving cap, cap rates. Yeah. So it is not each quarter consistent. And some REITs will do that internally. And I remember a period of time a few years ago when Calgary office really declined, one REIT took a major write down and one or two other REITs that had similar properties in the same market did not do that. So... It depends on the philosophy. It's like it's an internal corporate philosophy. It's not supposed to be, but it definitely turns out to be somewhat like that. So while the fair values that the REITs report do have some value to us, it's not a perfect methodology for comparing to the REITs. And if you listen to the earnings calls for the REITs, most of the time, the REIT CEOs, when they're asked about this, will say, well, we believe that this IFRS fair value is conservative. And it leads to the question, well, what is this meant to be? I think we've got a couple more minutes, Mark, and we've kind of touched on every asset class really except for retail, which was a, a big REIT holder holding for a long time. And then, of course, retail was dead during COVID. What are you seeing in your analysis just as it relates to retail and just its position 
for the REITs? So in our view, and we went into this year saying that retail was a good place to be in the Canadian REIT market. It was one sector that we were very positive on. When you look at the types of retail that most of the Canadian REITs own, it's not the type of retail that's being hurt significantly by either COVID or by growth in online shopping. You think about where Crombie, First Capital, Rio Can, Smart REIT, Walmart anchored power centers are what Smart REIT focuses on, but most of the others are grocery anchored retail, which is very defensive. And we're at a point now where these properties are performing well. They managed through COVID pretty well. Now we're getting positive leasing spreads from all of them. First Capital would be near the top, but not, Rio Can would not be far behind. And we view these as pretty defensive REITs as well. These REITs started several years ago, some more aggressively than others, in being very active in development. Some of it was just because they realized that if you have a flat grocery anchor shopping center, you might have some extra density in the parking lot, or you might be able to build on top of it. And there's just so much value to create with the land value for residential. So they are from the most active developers. And you know we were talking earlier about the value development. There is more value creation going on from the retail REITs than any other asset class by far. So we've been very positive on the retail sector. We recently did downgrade RioCan just because it's been up. It was up maybe almost 15% since we had upgraded it earlier in the year. We still like RioCan. We just thought that it had a nice run. But we think that there's very good value there. And it's a pretty defensive and easy place to be. When you look at industrial, the fundamentals are on fire. The rent growth, the vacancy is very low. It's very exciting. But you're definitely paying for that growth. When you look at the retail REITs, you're not really paying for that growth right now. The value creation that's going to come over the next five years, you're not paying very much for So it's a much safer and more interesting place to be. I'm not saying you can't do better over the next five years with industrial, but you're paying for growth to come, whereas in retail, you're really not. And we don't expect much vacancy from the retail region. Think about First Capital, Crombie, Choice, RioCan. These are pretty well-located portfolios, very defensive and very seasoned experience. For the most part, they've all disposed of their sort of tertiary market assets anyway. Right. Yeah, so. they've been very aggressive in selling off non-core real estate, yes. And now they have parking lots that end up being a fantastic real estate play. I'm sure when they bought half these centers in downtown core locations 40 years ago, the parking lot was a bit of an afterthought. And now it's going to be their uh, profit center for the next 10 years as they build out. I remember we had Peter Sweeney from Smart Centers on the podcast just before COVID. And he, I can't remember the number, unfortunately, this is a while ago, but he measured the amount of space of their parking lots across the country in number of football fields. And it was enormous. And, you know, and you think about this is all well-located, very usable, perfectly square sites. Yeah. And free. And really, free, yeah. right? Like, yeah. That's the best part. Paid for they can actually make some of these development make sense simply because the land is, I mean, effectively free if you think about it. And so. at the same time, residential land values have skyrocketed. Two factors driving it at the same time. That's great. All right, Mark, this has been super, super interesting. This is great to have you on now because this is a really interesting moment in time for all of us around the table right now. So I really enjoyed the conversation. I want to thank you for uh, coming on. And uh, I think we don't want to wait too long before having you back because yeah, hopefully it's, uh, it remains this interesting. Not more interesting. That we've got <laughs> yeah. enough. It's interesting enough. It's for enough now. spice in this dish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. We're, we're okay for now. But yeah, Mark, this has been fantastic. Thanks a lot for uh, coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, as always, to First National for uh, powering the podcast. And thanks for listeners to listening. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. 
First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.